from the epistle, which we heard a few minutes ago. Paul says, Jesus charges the rich of this world to set their hopes on God, to do good, to be rich in good deeds and generous, so that they may take hold of the life which is life indeed. So that they may take hold of the life which is life indeed. A businessman in San Antonio parked his brand new car on the street and went off to do some business. When he got back to it, he found a poor little boy of about 11, examining it with eyes full of wonder and envy. Is that your car? The boy asked. Yes, the man replied. It's beautiful. How much did you pay for it? Well, to be honest, the man answered, I don't know. It was given to me as a present by my brother. You mean your brother just gave it to you and it didn't cost you a penny? The boy asked. That's right, the man nodded. Oh boy, I wish that I... The man was sure the little boy was going to say, I wish I had a brother like that. But that isn't what he said. What he said was, I wish I could be a brother like that. And the man concluded, there I was in my fancy suit with the keys to a brand new car in my hand. And there was this little boy off the street. And yet this impoverished kid had more love in his heart than I had. He was far richer than I was. Jesus said, follow me. And then in this long season of Pentecost, he tells us exactly and sometimes painfully what that involves. These disturbing requirements are tough. Maybe we'd rather not deal with them. It would be far easier to refer to the passages that seem to support our own way of life. But the point of the parable is to tell us a truth that we need to know in hopes that it will change our lives. And it's not easy. Mark Twain once said, it's not what I don't understand about the Bible that bothers me. It's what I do understand. And so today we have yet another shocking gospel story that we may not be at all comfortable with. Jesus tells a parable of a rich man who died and regretted the way he had lived his life. He didn't have any regrets while he was alive on earth, though, because he was very wealthy, and he lived in a gated community, enjoying the finest luxuries the world had to offer. He was beautifully clothed and well-fed. On the other side of the gate, however, lay a poor beggar named Lazarus who was covered with sores licked by the dogs and who only had access to the crumbs left over by the rich man. Two radically different realities, seemingly separated by one gate, but they may as well have been living a half a world apart. When alive, the rich man never saw Lazarus, The gate never opened between the two worlds, the haves and the have-nots. 
The gap between them remained unbridged. Then ironically, they both died at the same time, finally joined together if only by death, and their fates became reversed as Lazarus was healed and the rich man was tormented. The point of this parable is not to give a literal description of life after death, but to teach a lesson. It's a warning, a wake-up call for those who are concerned with their own comfort that they are so concerned that they are oblivious to the needs of others. Now, after his death, the rich man wants someone else to bridge the gap for him. But he and his brothers already had plenty of warning from Moses and the prophets on how to live their lives. What Jesus was saying in the parable is, you close the gap. Now. And Jesus is still saying it to us. Close the gap. And if you don't do it in this life, it'll be too late. How do we do that? There is a way, and it's that one little word at the beginning of the parable about Lazarus, who represents human suffering, and a rich man who represents human laziness. The rich man, we're told, has a gate, that little word gate. And Lazarus and all he stands for lie just the other side of that gate. You see, gates can keep people out. And they can keep people in. And they can be used to separate us from others, to keep out or relocate certain people whom we fear might adversely affect our way of life. Gates can be real, physical structures. Or they can be policies that make entrance into our neighborhoods or even our country impossible. There are a variety of broken people who enter our lives each day. The rich man separated himself from God and others by his lack of compassion, by creating a chasm between himself and those in need. So it's not always what we do, but as we pray in the general confession, what we leave undone. And Jesus says that doing nothing is not an option. This gospel is shocking, I think, because Lazarus is at the gate. He's 15 years old, and he ran away from home as one of countless others who have been, become addicted to drugs and alcohol and die on the streets without ever knowing the joys and security of a family. Lazarus is at the gate. It may be someone as close to us as in our own family who needs us to survive a particularly tough time in their life. Lazarus is at the gate. He's been out of work for weeks due to downsizing. He sells his car and takes out a mortgage and keeps sending out resumes. With no salary, no pension, and ever-increasing debt, his prospects look dim and thoughts of suicide have become more frequent. Lazarus is at the gate. He's been in a nursing home for almost 10 years with few visitors. 
When she hints about coming to visit during the holidays, family members quickly change the subject. So she retreats into herself, bides her time, and prays for death. Lazarus is at the gate. He lives next door. And we know that he's been lonely since his wife of 50 years died. But we just don't have time to listen. And so we hurry by and hope he doesn't call out after us. Lazarus is at the gate. They are one family in a crowd of thousands who are achingly walking from their homeland in the Middle East in search of a safe place to resettle. We are accustomed to seeing homeless people in our community pushing their earthly belongings in a grocery cart. Imagine those who have all of theirs strapped on their backs and the backs of their children. Lazarus is at the gate. This is the message put forth before us today by Paul and by Jesus. Each Lazarus we meet challenges our humanity, the quality of our Christianity, and the authenticity of our discipleship. Do we have eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to understand, and hands to help the Lazaruses in our lives? Do we tend to these people now? Or like the rich man in the story, do we wait until it's too late? And yes, gates can keep people out, but they can also mark a point of connection. Gates can lead from a self-consumed, self-centered life into the bigger world around us to meet those so-called others, the children and the grandchildren of Lazarus, if we will only open the gate and step out. What Jesus is asking us to find to do is find these gates that connect us to those who are hungry, oppressed, or strangers, to identify the kinds of gates that widen the distance between us and the world's deprived. And then once we've identified those gates, to open them and to step out and see who we find there. In Sunday school, we all learned it's better to give than to receive. But isn't it healthier when we can do both? Such joy can come from working together, each one learning and growing from the gift of others. Ask any of our parish volunteers who have discovered that absolute joy from the rest program, Gilead House, Mill Street, and the St. Vincent de Paul dining room. There's no gap. It's a two-way street. Because it's a ministry with, not a ministry to. The sin of the rich man was not that he was rich, but that he was absorbed only in himself and his own life. It isn't that he never saw Lazarus. It's that he never cared. He never made the choice to cross the gap to tend to the one who was outside of his own realm. That same choice is ours, to open the gate or to let it become a chasm. 
find the good news in this parable, we've got to look at the gap. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we need to understand first that Jesus himself has bridged the divide that we've created. Every time we come here, we're reminded that God bridged the gap first and continues to do so whenever we gather for Eucharist. God wiped out the barrier of sin that kept us apart, separated from God and walled off from each other. You see, we were the persons sitting outside the gate. God continues to see us each time we come and beg for our food, each time we extend our empty hands. So do we have a chance of getting it right? Are we supposed to go and sell everything we have and give the money to the poor? Maybe only God can speak the message that we're supposed to hear, that the human heart is finally satisfied only in God, not in worldly accumulation. Perhaps we're called to cast our lot with the poor like Mother Teresa. Maybe we're called to let go of our dependence on things in exchange for the leap of faith that Christian discipleship requires. Maybe we're to claim the role we play in an unjust world. But we have to choose. One thing is certain. God's abundant grace, God's inconceivable love, gives us courage to go where we once might never dare going. And none of us can remain unchanged in the face of the gospel. Loving our neighbor isn't a pious sentiment, but a radical morality that makes everyone our neighbor. We don't have to be monetarily rich to be neighborly, to share what we have. We've been shown in Jesus Christ another way to live, giving ourselves for the sake of others to find that fullness of life. Or as Paul describes it, life which is life indeed, where worldly things will not assure happiness, where we will peacefully and sacrificially share our bounty, where we have a loving and trusting spiritual relationship with God and others, and know that what we do with our abundance is a sign of whether or not we are living that kind of life to which we've been called. So the moral of the story? Well, the story isn't over yet. By the grace of God, it's not too late. My friends, let's close the gap now. Amen.